lest you think that this practice is only concerned with the difficulties of life, tonight's talk is about happiness. In fact, four kinds of happiness. The Buddha talked about four kinds of happiness, and he kind of rated them like, you know, one star, two star, three star, and four star happiness. So we're going to cover those. There's a prayer for all beings from the Tibetan tradition that reads like this. May all beings have happiness and the cause of happiness. May all beings be free from sorrow and the cause of sorrow. May all beings remain unseparated from the sacred happiness, which is free from all sorrow. And so this happiness is a very central uh, feature of what we are opening to. In our culture, in our psychologically-minded culture, uh, there's quite a bit of interest in happiness, in discovering what happiness is. So there have been a lot of studies. They study uh, the correlates of happy people. You know, is it to do with gender? Is it to do with age? Is it to do with socioeconomic class? Is it to do with education? Is it to do with where you live or what religion you follow? They haven't been able to figure it out. They can find no correlates of what makes a happy person. So now they've direct now they've turned their attention to looking for a happiness gene. <laughs> Perhaps it is somewhere deep in the recesses of our DNA. Now, from the point of view of this practice, happiness is not based on any of those things, but is rather a result of how we use our attention. Happiness is seen as an actual practice. I think, like many of you, for myself, I think I waited for happiness. For many years, I was just kind of waiting for it, waiting for it to strike, you know, not that I was just not busy and doing things, but I had this sort of mental map of life that happiness would arrive someday and I would know it. Well, I waited a long time. And even after I started this practice, which was some 20 years ago, I think in some more subtle way, I was still waiting for happiness. And it really wasn't until I did my first uh, extended period of loving-kindness practice about 15 years ago for six weeks that I really got it that happiness is a practice. Happiness is a result of something we do with our intention and with our attention. So I want to talk about this tonight. So what are these four kinds of happiness that the Buddha talked about? The 
the one-star happiness <laughs> is the happiness of pleasant sense experience, of pleasant sense contact, the happiness of pleasant tastes, pleasant sounds, pleasant sights, pleasant touch. All of this is in the area of the pleasure of sensory experience. Now, when we're out there in the world, or many times in our lives, we may have noticed that when we are living in a very intense and stimulated environment with lots to do and lots to achieve and lots to attain, we kind of lose touch of the simplicity of sense contact. It is said that when a person is filled with lots of greed, lots of hatred, or very deluded, that it takes an enormous amount of intense sensory stimulation to get through, kind of. We seek intense sensory stimulation when we are living in an intense way. Now, here on retreat, you've had the opportunity to experience quite a simple life, wouldn't you say? You know, a lot has been removed here. And in that, what happens? In this space, our senses become alive. You may not be getting exactly the food that you want. You may not be getting exactly the kind of stimulation and entertainment that you want. But what happens in this environment is that our sensory awareness opens and becomes very sensitive, very alive. And so we begin to notice with, quite easily actually, how we are affected by both the unpleasant and the pleasant. The poet Ryokan, I spent many um, happy moments in long retreat reading Ryokan because he was on retreat when he wrote this, these lovely poems. He writes, Without desire, everything is sufficient. With seeking, myriad things are impoverished. We begin to see this on retreat, that when we are not so filled by our desires, when we are not so driven, that actually things become quite, we become more content with less that we don't need as much in the way of sensory stimulation. I think it's uh, an interesting time in our country as Americans. It's sort of the koan for our country about how much we actually need to be happy. We have so many possessions. We have so many choices. Our possessions seem at times to own us. We buy something and then what happens? We need to insure it. We need to take care of it. We need to upgrade it or repair it or we need to move it. I just moved this spring so I was 
very conscious now of whenever I buy something, I say to myself, remember, you're going to have to move this again sometime. Eventually, we have to get rid of all this stuff, and it can keep us very busy just looking after all of these possessions. Does it bring happiness? Does it bring happiness? How much do we need? We have so many choices in our consumer culture. The choices of shopping, the choices of the mall, the choices of the worldwide wait, as my friend calls it. <laughs> the worldwide web, endless information, endless choices for all kinds of information and stimulation. Even in the spiritual domain, we have so many choices, so many different teachings, so many different teachers, so many different books, so many different workshops. When I started practice 20 years ago, there were two books, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and a little book by Joseph Goldstein. That was it. It made life very simple. I knew that if I was going to understand the Dharma, I had to go on retreat, which is what I did. I actually didn't read any books for a very long time. So the question, do more consumer choices actually bring happiness? This is a key question. Um, There was an article in the um, London Times a few years ago, and it talks about the situation in England in the, in the consumer world, but I think it's probably somewhat uh, applicable to our culture as well. It, said, it says, a new generation of young adults who value inner peace more than money and material possessions is stamping its mark upon British society. The Tao generation, as it has been named, after the Chinese philosophy which emphasizes a positive and carefree attitude, This Tao generation, although only 8% of the adult population, is growing rapidly and its influence is being felt throughout the nation. Its lack of materialism, indifference to designer labels and brand names, and unwillingness to plan ahead poses a potential nightmare for those in the retail industry. as well as the financial services industry. (laughs) A marketing consultant said, these are what we call leading-edge people who have a great influence upon the whole of society. Studying them will help us understand more about what the future holds. (laughs) The Tao generation is easygoing, non-materialistic, It is unlikely to plan for retirement and takes each day as it comes. (laughs) Leaving work at 65 is inconceivable, and it is as likely to retire at 40 as to keep working until 80. The Tao generation is unlikely to put work before their overall enjoyment of life. 
And David Anthony of Synergy Marketing said that they posed a dilemma for business and their lack of interest in possessions has implications for the economy. <laughs> a lot of people in the financial services industry just cannot understand this new generation, he said. Who would have thought we'd be a threat to the consumer economy? But here we are, living a simple, happy life. It's often struck me with some irony that we had to spend some millions of dollars to build what you see here. <laughs> came out really well. But simply to teach people the value of this kind of simplicity. And I know you've all tasted and experienced it here on retreat. You haven't felt too deprived, have you? Instead, as I said, there is this possibility of awakening the senses and connecting, connecting more deeply with the beauty of this world, with our own capacity for feeling connected and alive. How many moments of delight have you actually experienced here? Maybe the smell of the herbs in the air, the sage, the rosemary, touching the ground with your feet, just stepping, seeing the sky and how it changes from day to night, the moon, watching the birds make those great sky circles, even taking a bath or putting on clean clothes. These become very delightful experiences often on retreat. So there's something in letting ourselves feel this opening of the senses that is a kind of happiness. We can take this back into our lives with us very easy to do, just taking that time to notice when you're feeling that pleasant, delightful moment of sensory experience. The problem that sometimes happens is what? We want more of it. Oh, that was nice. Give me more. Or we want to make it not ever go away. We want it to be permanent. And then we get into grasping, and then it is not so... Um, delightful anymore, becomes something else, greed. Using this contact with the senses sometimes is a skillful way of bringing more balance to the mind. There was a woman once who came on retreat who had been really just drowning in grief. And was kind of at the end of it, but it had become such a habit, it was hard for her to let it go. So I suggested that she just pay attention to pleasant sights, pleasant sounds, pleasant feelings, as a way of reopening her and reconnecting her with the life around her. It helped to bring some balance to what she was experiencing. The American uh, Buddha 
Henry David Thoreau knew about this, the delight of a simple life. He wrote, There were times when I could not afford to sacrifice the bloom of the present moment to any work, whether of head or hands. Sometimes in a summer morning, having taken my accustomed bath, I sat in my sunny doorway from sunrise till noon, wrapped in a reverie, amidst the pines and hickories and sumacs, in undisturbed solitude and stillness, while the birds sang round. I grew in those seasons like corn in the night, and they were far better than any work of the hands would have been. They were not times subtracted from my life, but so much over and above my usual allowance. I'm sure many of us have had times like that. So, there was a recent cartoon in the New Yorker magazine that showed a couple pulling up to a scenic lookout point right off the road. So their car was there, and they had gotten out of the car, and the man was up looking out at this wondrous display of mountains. And and he's saying to his wife, so this is the famous environment that everyone's so hyped up about? It's kind of come to that, you know, with a lot of people living in cities and not having this contact with nature, not knowing the delight of this kind of openness to the beauty of this world. So on retreat, we experience more keenly, perhaps, the happiness that the Buddha was talking about, the happiness of sense pleasure. Next, he talked about a two-star happiness. That is the happiness of cultivating an open heart, the happiness of cultivating beautiful mind states, the the state of loving-kindness, of compassion, of mudita, and equanimity. These are called the four Brahma-viharas, Brahma-vihara meaning meaning holy dwelling. They are like places of refuge that we can create for the mind to dwell in instead of dwelling in aversion and fear and judgment. We have these places called holy dwellings to put our mind, and it brings a lot of happiness to do loving-kindness. Brings a lot of happiness to extend compassion to those who are suffering. Brings a lot of happiness to send, to rejoice in the happiness of others, which is what mudita is about. To be open-hearted and equanimous in the face of our lives and of all the changes. It's the practice of learning how to love learning how to love ourselves, learning how to love others. It's a practice. It's a way of using our attention. In the process of doing the practice, we discover how much love there actually is in the world, that it's not some limited supply, 
but rather we are dipping into a vast ocean of boundless love when we practice in this way. The first time I did loving-kindness practice, I did to myself, to the benefactor, to the friend. The next instruction was to choose a neutral person, someone that I had neither pleasant feelings for nor unpleasant feelings, someone rather neutral. So I was on a retreat, just as you are here, and out of the crowd I picked a person who I had hardly noticed up until that time, being as she was, she seemed quite neutral to me. And for a week, from morning till night, over and over, I sent her metta. I said the phrase, the four phrases of metta to her over and over and over again. And I was completely amazed that how my feelings for her began to develop, how much love I began to feel for this person, how much I was interested in her welfare. I cared about, you know, whether she was eating enough and whether she would be... <laughs> cold when she went outside and I would leave her little treats on her zafu and I she just became the object of all of my affection <laughs> and I still to this day have no idea what her name was or anything about her but just the power of giving that kind of attention to this person completely changed her in my eyes and brought a great deal of happiness to me. So this is the one example, there are many, of the power of how we use our attention and what kind of happiness comes from that. Now, cultivating these Brahma-viharas, it does not produce insight into the ultimate nature of reality. They are not considered to be liberating. However, they do smooth and balance our emotions. They help us to strengthen our heart and our capacity to open to that which is difficult. To live with love rather than fear. To open ourselves to the possibility even of happiness. At one point, the Buddha said, there are two kinds of rare beings, those who are kind and those who can receive kindness. In doing loving-kindness practice, we are opening ourselves to both giving kindness and receiving it. Sometimes the way in which we receive somebody's gift is, has nothing to do so much with the incredible generosity or the grandeur of their gift, but rather with our own open-hearted appreciation. There's a story I saw in the newspaper by, uh, about a woman in uh, West Virginia a cleaning woman, Regina Jennings, was paid $10,000 a year during the 15 years she spent mopping floors and dusting classrooms 
at the West Virginia University College of Law. So it came as a shock to school officials when she recently donated $93,000 for what she said was the kindness shown her by faculty and students. They always talked to me and asked me how I was doing, Jennings said. They treated me extremely well through the years. She certainly repaid their kindness. On the other side of that, there's a kind of happiness in giving that we all know, and it's worth just letting ourselves feel it. How happy is it when we think of giving somebody something? We think of a gift we want to give, and then we give it happiness. And then we think about it later and just rejoice in how good all of that feels, that whole process. So generosity is said to be happy in the beginning, happy in the middle, and happy in the end. So this focus on generosity, on cultivating states of mind which are loving, This is always an option for us, always, no matter what our circumstances. And it connects us in some deep way with our true nature, which is love itself. So that's the two-star happiness. What is the three-star happiness? The three-star happiness is the happiness of concentration what the Buddha called undivided attention. When we are undivided and wholeheartedly attentive in that state for some period of time, the hindrances are absent. Greed is absent. Aversion is absent. Fear is absent. We are completely united in our attention on one thing doesn't matter so much what that thing is, whether it's the breath, or our child, or making a meal, or uh, being with our loved one, or um, whatever it is. With that quality of undivided attention, a natural happiness is present. Out of that, and certainly we've you know, been cultivating that to some degree here on retreat, out of that steadiness and stillness of mind which comes from just being with one breath, one breath at a time, one step at a time, we begin to notice a kind of stillness, a kind of calmness, a kind of ease of being, which we actually, over time, begin to prefer to the agitation or stimulation of sitting and thinking. Is this not true? Now, concentration is a whole area of practice. And the Buddha talked in one text about 40 different kinds of concentration practices and how each of them leads to different states of absorption. Subtle realms of rapture, of happiness, of silence, of boundless space, of pure awareness. 
This is not the focus of what we are doing here. These higher levels of of absorption require a lot of skill and guidance and usually a longer period than 10 days to practice in. So these three kinds of happiness, the happiness of sense pleasure, the happiness of beautiful states of mind, and the happiness of concentration, the Buddha actually experienced all of these kinds of happiness. Certainly as a prince, he, his life in the palace, he had lots of sense pleasure. And as a wandering sadhu, he did practices which taught him the Brahma-viharas and the states of absorption. But he saw that as wonderful as these practices are, and as much happiness as they brought, it was all conditional. The happiness was dependent on having certain conditions. And he knew that that was not the liberation which he sought. So he went on to discover a happiness, the four-star happiness, a happiness not dependent on any condition of mind or body. How did he do it? How did he do it? He discovered what is called the middle way. That for liberating happiness, for liberating insight, we need to balance the qualities of concentration and insight. We need to find the right balance between calmness of being and insight. He talked actually about four kinds of people. He was always describing all these kinds of people. In this instance, four kinds of people. The first kind are those who have lots of calmness and no insight. Now we might raise our hands on that one and think, yes, that's me. I've been sitting here. I feel pretty calm and nothing's happening. You know, there's no no insights. Where are these liberating insights I've heard so much about? Then he said there are some people who have lots of insight and no calm. And certainly our world is filled with such people. We can quite easily, probably a lot of our friends are this kind of people. We have overflowing with all kinds of insights into all kinds of things. But without the, the calmness of being, without the steadiness and focus that allows these insights to be integrated into our being. Then he said, there are those who have neither neither calm nor insight. Don't raise your hands. Most of us usually think that's who we are. And then he said that there are those who are well established in both. And for those who have lots of calm and no insight, he would instruct more mindfulness, more inquiry, more, more looking to see the nature of impermanence, to see the nature of suffering. For those with more insight and very little calm, he would say, more concentration. Develop that steadiness and focus of attention. So the middle way is the path of practice that we are doing here. It is one which involves enough concentration so that one's mindfulness can be uh, 
continuous and subtle and penetrating so that we can see through this illusion of permanence, the illusion of me and mine, the illusion of I must have this for my well-being, my happiness. We need enough concentration so that our mindfulness has this, this, these qualities, but not so much concentration that we are using it to repress or block out the natural arisings of mind and body. So it's a balance. So what is a liberating insight, anyway? We've all heard this is insight meditation, and, you know, we're here to have insights. What is it exactly? I'm sure many of you have tasted this as a kind of shift in perception, sometimes profound, sometimes very subtle. It changes how we view things. It changes our understanding of who and what we are. Liberating insights are often accompanied by profound feelings of release and gratitude. Gratitude often wells up quite naturally in the the, uh, wake of a liberating insight. Now, they may come suddenly or they may come very, very, very slowly over a long period of time. Suzuki Roshi said that awakening is like walking in the fog or a heavy mist. He said sometimes when you're out walking in the fog, you don't realize that you are wet until you come inside and then you find you are completely soaked through and that sometimes insight is like that. It just penetrates without our even being aware of it. We can't control how or when we are going to have a liberating insight. We can't just sit down and determine, okay, today's my day, I'm ready, come on, bring it on. If this were possible, retreats here would be much shorter, wouldn't they? You would have. <laughs> You would have already ordered up your liberating insight and said, that's enough, i got to go home, i got things to do, a busy life. But it doesn't work that way. Instead, on retreat, we try to cultivate the conditions which are maximally conducive to insight arising. That's why we encourage the, sli- the silence the slowing down, the mindfulness of just paying close attention moment to moment. Keep looking, keep seeing. Don't get stuck in some kind of repetitive groove. Don't cling. Let go. Keep going. Keep exploring with your attention. Seeing the truth of the three characteristics that Deborah spoke about last night. I think it's Lama Surya Das who said, enlightenment is an accident. Retreats make us more accident prone. (laughs) So actually in this gradual 
way of working, we learn something very important, which is that we learn to trust in the liberating power of awareness itself. The liberating power of awareness. You know, when we first come in, it's not obvious that mindfulness is a liberating force in the mind. At first, when we sit down, we often feel other things. We may even feel alarmed by what we see when we look inside. The endless monkey mind, the aches and pains of the body, the fear, the judgment, the anger, the regret, the full catastrophe as we look. And we feel somehow, this is not meditation, this should not be happening, and I, I must be doing something terribly wrong for this to be going on. So we judge it, we resist it, we try to avoid it, we take it very personally that somehow all of this means something about me for having these experiences and these feelings. Fear means something about me, my inadequacy. Or anger means something about me, I'm such an unspiritual person. So this is not mindfulness. This is judgment masquerading as mindfulness. Over time, and it does take time, we learn to be aware without judgment. And this is a very significant moment when we learn to be aware without judgment, just seeing moment to moment how it is, how it is now. Oh, right now. What is happening? Well, sorrow is present, sensations, thoughts. Now it's changed to regret, just moving, just changing moment to moment, on and on. Just this simple awareness of noticing what is happening without judgment. There's a sutra called the Avatamsaka Sutta. Having no view of self, one is always peaceful. When we don't take all of this catastrophe of our inner experience to be self, we remain peaceful. Not using our experience to build an identity, just the arising and passing of the whole show no one to be bothered by any of it. So non-judging awareness is a key piece of our practice. And even more than that, we begin to sense that in the very nature of awareness itself, there is kindness, there is love. The sixth Zen patriarch wrote this. Good friends, my teaching of the Dharma takes awareness and kindness as its basis. Never say mistakenly that awareness and kindness are different. They are a unity, not two things. Awareness itself is the substance of kindness. Kindness itself is the function of awareness. At the very moment there is awareness, then kindness exists. Good friends, 
This means that meditation and kindness are alike. Be careful not to say that meditation gives rise to kindness or that kindness gives rise to meditation or that meditation and kindness are different from each other. Awareness and kindness are inherently, by their very nature, the same. Awareness allows everything to be seen and known. Some people have compared awareness to be like the space in this room. Anything at all can come through this space, and the space itself is unaffected. The space in this room doesn't have an opinion about whether we should be sitting or whether we should be having a big dance. It doesn't have an opinion. It is neutral. Some people have compared awareness to being like a mirror, simply reflecting what is put, put in front of it, not for or against anything. When we are opening, we are opening into this kindness and awareness, this awareness that is intrinsically kind. There's a poem by Hafiz. He says, How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. As we sit, we can feel the encouragement of the light of awareness to open, to allow ourselves to be known, to be seen, to bloom, you could say. And as we practice, we learn to trust this. And in that allowing and in that trust and in that faith in the power of awareness, a happiness grows, a deep happiness grows, because we taste the whiff of freedom. We taste the possibility of liberation. A deep inner freedom which is not dependent on the conditions of body and mind we begin to actually see and feel the happiness and freedom in deeply knowing the truth of impermanence, in deeply knowing the truth of no self. We taste the happiness and freedom of deeply knowing that the letting go is the end of suffering. And this is the happiness of the Buddha the four-star happiness. So our practice over time becomes this movement, you could say, from faith in the perfectibility of the personal story to the open-hearted wisdom of seeing the universal nature of all of our experience, that we are not exempt from the universal laws of change, of suffering and no self, nor is any other being. There is a commonality. As we move from this identification with the personal story to a deeper understanding of the universal nature of life, 
it gets easier and easier paradoxically to let go of the personal story. The personal story then often feels lighter, less of a burden, less burdened by the struggle to perfect, to attain, to become something. And our faith in the wisdom of letting go increases. I'd like to close with um, something written by Achan Sumedho. He says this so beautifully. He says, Nirvana refers to the realization human beings have when they are not grasping anything. In that realization of not grasping, one experiences a connection. One is in alignment with the divine because when there is no grasping, there is the real experience of compassion. One feels compassion, joyfulness, happiness, and serenity, not because of any personal attainment or achievement, but because there is nobody there. There is no grasping of the body as self. There's no grasping of views or opinions or feelings or anything else. There is simply non-grasping. When you realize non-grasping, you experience true ease, peacefulness, and bliss. But this state of happiness is not the usual one for human beings. We must train the mind and heart to realize it. Let's sit together for a minute. May all beings have happiness and the cause of happiness. May all beings be free from sorrow and the cause of sorrow. May all beings remain unseparated from the sacred happiness, which is free from all sorrow. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 13, 2000. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.